Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Mystical Musings, September 21st, 2014. Happy Equinox. Right on the mark. Here in the library of the Colorado Heights University, beaming out from the highest place in the Mile High City with Myron McClellan and me, Lawrence Phillips. Those of us who identify as spiritual but not religious, who are non-sectarian, non-denominational, non-doctrinaire, are the fastest growing demographic of the sacred communities in America today. Thank you for joining us. Creating our community of mystics, people finding unity with God, the breath of life, the gentle whisper, the great spirit. As a community of mystics who know spiritual apprehension of truths beyond the intellect. I am because we are. I am because we are one, celebrating body and spirit. With guidance so available to us, we can streamline our prayers and practices by intending rather than efforting. We can allow and not labor. What often complicates matters, what often complicates matters is the chattering mind and the fearful inner child. We delay the manifestation of daily expansion by making too big a fuss over the hows and the whys of personal co-creation and by succumbing to doubt. Today we discuss how we can let go at a very deep level. This is an era of exciting and relatively easy creation with the assistance of divine presence. Now with us in a way that can be felt by the whole of us in the moment of making choices, focusing on them and allowing them to come forth in joy and ease. The more relaxed we are, the easier it is for the desires of our hearts to come into actualization. We can relax more these days because we know more deeply than ever that the evolution we're going through has been in progress for millennia and that we are inevitably moving from a world experience based in fear to one based in love. Thank you for joining us for a celebration of the splendor of the simple. So they're going to muse on the simple, the splendor of the simple, no less, in this incredibly complex time with exponential intricacies ranging from the planetary and geopolitical to impotent partisan politics, from the nature of the family itself becoming more and more complex, from there being so many ways to even make a baby, from Facebook declaring 57 varieties of gender used to be simple. It was just Adam and Steve, if you were gay, or Adam and what's her name, if you were hewing to the straight and narrow. Facebook talked about such um, genders as androgynous, gender fluid, 
pan-gender, transgender, two-spirit, and on and on and on. So when we seem inundated with a cacophony of the complex, Myron and Lawrence are gonna muse on the splendor of the simple, good luck with that. <laughs> Anyone else finding life complex these days? Can I have a show of hands for those who think it's, oh my goodness, yes, not surprising, not surprising. It seems very complex. How about the world situation? Is it my imagination or did things get a whole lot more complex this summer? The Middle East, Ukraine, Ebola, children clamoring at our southern border to come into the country. Oh, and then there's complex. My digital watch is complex. I much prefer an analog watch. I have an analog brain. <laughs> and do you really want your household appliances and the Internet of Things talking to you? Do you want your refrigerator telling you, mm, watch out, well, no, no, not that ice cream, not now. <laughs> Apparently that's where we're heading. Everything's gonna be connected in a very short order. If you want something done in Cyberland, talk to someone in their teens or their 20s. How about communicating? Supposedly it's easier with so many ways to be in touch. Texting, email, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and on and on. But are we really more in touch? I experience repeatedly that it takes several times to get through to many people because we're so inundated that we don't even pay attention to the different devices that we've got. And then how about information overload, courtesy of the tech world that is supposed to make things simpler. Don't get me started about passwords. <laughs> and then there's 500 insipid channels, cable news, a constant stream of information needing our response. But we are mystics after all. So it all begins in the inner realms, not so much with the outer, even though they are sometimes seemingly very compelling but especially with our emotional state, because the emotions can be the fuel for our learning, our journey, our transformation, our journey into the mystic realms. So where are you starting today? What do we bring in? Do some of you have a cold or a sinus thing happening? Is there stress, often a word for anxiety? Where are you coming from today? Just notice it. Give a breath or two into it. Just notice where you start, what you're leaving behind at the door. Notice if the tendency is to be embracing the difficult feelings of anger and fear and grief and all the other terms that are often referencing them anxiety, stress, upset. Are you embracing them in general? Denying them in general? Avoiding them? Or paying attention to them? Breathing into them? Allowing them? Not so much wallowing, but just allowing, giving space. Either we're opening or closing, it's pretty simple on that level. Either we're opening to them, allowing or resisting, being simple or being complex. It gets complex if we push away and avoid anger, fear and grief, not in terms of acting out, but rather just of maturely feeling and allowing, permitting the feelings, breathing into them and then letting them go. And so we start today with where we are. Noticing your breathing. Allowing it throughout the musing to be very present, like a friend. So we're breathing a bit more fully. Our tendency in this fear-based society is to shut our breath down. So just notice if you can allow the breathing to be just a little more full, just a little, not even a deep breath, but a deeper breath. Using the breath as a tool that takes us out of our intellectual 
pursuit. And not that I'm knocking the intellect, because I love to read. I know so many of you do. And we have brilliant conversations at moments. But our culture tends to replace felt perception. That is to say, sensation, emotion, and breathing with thinking. So we think about our feelings. We miss the boat on that one frequently and pervasively. So breathing as you're getting here and noticing the tendency in your breathing of the compression in the chest around the lungs, around the heart, around the diaphragm, and maybe just to allow yourself to lengthen just a little bit in the sit, just a slight lengthening, and maybe even a little bit of an oscillation. Micro, so that you're slightly bending and slightly extending. You can even think it if you don't want to do it, but just allowing yourself to really get that oscillation in your body felt, even if it's micro, doesn't matter. The brain still registers it. There's a little flexion, spinal flexion, a little extension, just a tiny, tiny little oscillating pattern that allows you to remember to breathe. <laughs> now, granted, we're always breathing anyway, otherwise we're dead, but we tend to shallow the breath. And here we want to open the breath just a little more than we tend to in our daily quotidian life. So there's the breath as a tool to be present to. It can be the one thing that we pay attention to. Then you can have the oscillation of this tiny little oscillation that opens and closes intentionally, no matter what position you're sitting in. Many years ago, the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard talked about the purity of heart is to will one thing. So allowing yourself to open the heart by willing one thing, rather than allowing monkey mind to be running around in its cage, breathing, moving, presencing, allowing ourselves to get here now. As we open to perceiving this extraordinary field that we're beginning to create here today. Just sensing, even with your eyes open if you wish, but if you soften the eyes just a little bit and let go of the tendency to hold the eyes to look, but rather to softly gaze, then you change your relationship to one of the primary sense mechanisms that we have that locks in the world without allowing it to be more fluid, soft, transformative. So softening the eyes, deepening the breath, allowing the gentle oscillation, getting here now. As we open to perceiving this extraordinary collective field that we're generating together, truly the splendor of the simple. Thank you for being here. We had so many emails from people in our community that we thought we'd be speaking to about six people today, which would have been perfect, right? Because it's all perfect. Everything's going according to plan, so we can relax. It's that simple. They're all paths lead home. But we're going to talk about some things today that may help us in our daily lives not continue to complicate things more than they need to be. It is a paradox that the Splendor of the Simple, a very simple title, has the longest description we've ever <laughs> sent out. It's like we wrote an essay here. So those people who are not with us have said, we, we get it, we understand, we get a lot of the core of it, but have also said they will be with us in spirit. But we're so glad you're here in your physical form, with your hearts open and your minds open, 
to celebrate the wonder of the spiritual path. It is indeed a celebration and it is a time of devotion. We use the word devotion instead of worship because worship implies a separation which we do not experience. But it is a moment of devotion and a time when we can be all of who we are with no judgments. We can be our authentic selves. We can be in our hearts. We can feel ourselves connected to one another. We can experience the divine presence in all its wonder and joy. So thanks for being here to celebrate with us on this solstice. And speaking of the solstice, I mean equinox, thank you. (laughs) Speaking of the equinox, um, make sure you leave a little brandy out for your nature spirits so they can celebrate today.
Myron's mystical piano musings are channeled from the collective field that we all create here today spontaneously. As many of you know, Myron tends in our partnership to be the opti-mystic, and I tend to be the pessy-mystic. <laughs> so please, if you would, allow me to be a little pessy for a while, uh, voicing some of uh, all of our darker concerns about how difficult and complex it can be to keep it simple uh, in the 21st century, maintaining a clear perspective of the unified field in the face of our daunting challenges. Amid the unsettling complexities of our contemporary life, there is such a, an unsettled collective sense right now with the widespread acceleration of exponential change externally, including and especially the tsunami of technological transformation sweeping over the globe. While here in America for 30 years, there's been a flat middle-class income as well as the very great increasing wealth gap. The US being swamped with refugee children from collapsing Central American countries. Efforts to contain Ebola are straining West African governments. Globally, we have a gigantic wave of climate change pummeling our planet in so many growingly extreme ways including the loss of the coral reefs and the acidification of the oceans and the loss of many fisheries. There is the intractability of our polarized politics and the extreme skewing of facts and truth in the media. While the heartland is facing severe drought with the increasing likelihood that fresh water will become a commodity more valuable than oil in many areas throughout the world. The UN recently announced that the number of refugees, asylum seekers, and internally displaced people worldwide has for the first time since World War II gone beyond 50 million people. There are the escalating face-offs between Russia and Ukraine, as well as China and Japan, the ongoing horrors of Syria and, the, and Iraq. It's all enough to make one a little pessimistic. No wonder anxiety is a widespread collective response to our extraordinarily volatile times. But let me also make the case for the optimistic perspective. In order to keep my pessimistic at least somewhat in check, I intentionally seek out positive evidence and seek out uplifting resonance of transformation, not just on a small scale, but with the serious possibility of mass transformation. Hence our monthly segment, Incipient Evidence for Mass Positive Transformation. Recently, the Independent Pew Research Center released a major report on the millennial generation subtitled, Confident, Connected, Open to Change. As well as the Sunday New York Times recently publishing, Generation Nice, the millennials are emerging as a dominant demographic force. Millennials approximately are those born after 1980 and before 2000, more or less, a huge cohort of about 80 million Americans. These are the first to come of age in the 21st century and its staggering rate of technological change. Hence the 10-year-olds who master smartphones and iPads. The millennial generation has been accused of narcissism with Facebook and social media absorption, selfies all over the place, reality TV. But what Pew Foundation finds and New York Times corroborates is that the millennials are not an entitled generation, but a complex and introspective one with a far higher proportion of non-whites and single parent families. They're a big part of the reason that, Ameri that the American electorate will lose its white majority later in this century. Its members have endured many large public traumas from 9-11, expensive wars and the Great Recession, as well as pervasive images of weather disasters here with the Colorado floods, as well as Katrina, Sandy, Fukushima, Haiti, and the 2004 tsunami. A majority of millennials believe illegal immigrants should be granted a pathway to citizenship. That's true of no other age group. According to Pew's polls, a massive 68% of millennials support same-sex marriage. Among baby boomers and older voters, support for same-sex marriage is still 
below 50%. The numbers are similar in marijuana legalization. 69% of millennials think it's a good idea. Baby boomers may think that they invented ma marijuana, but only about half think it ought to be legal. <laughs> Most of them, the millennials, don't identify strongly with either political party, and their standoffishness goes beyond politics. The millennials are skeptical of and unmoored from institutions. More are unchurched than any older generation. Only about one-fourth of millennials are married. At the same age, about half of the baby, baby boomers had tied the knot. Despite their wariness about traditional institutions and despite the punishing recession at the start of their careers, millennials are amazingly upbeat. According to Pew, 86% say they already make enough money to live the kind of life that they want now or are confident they will in the future. They reject security for work adventure. Record numbers are signing up for Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, and Teach for America. They are indifferent to prestige brands in the marketplace and favor companies that embrace good citizenship values. They are also indifferent to the ownership generation. They want to share, not own. They seem less narcissistic and more communal with the highest value being not self-promotion, but empathy. An open-hearted and open-minded connection with others, epitomized by the better you're doing, the more you can share with other people. More than half of millennials say they would favor a bigger government that provides more services over a small government that does less. On social issues, including immigration, interracial marriage, white millennials are liberals too. Race doesn't matter at all. In the face of the widespread complex darknesses, it is rather simple, really. It is indeed the next generation that offers the splendor of the simple. Believing that their best days are ahead, it is no wonder that millennials are our nation's most dogged optimists and are hence this month's incipient evidence for mass positive transformation and shining exemplars of the splendor of the simple. Many of you who know me know that I'm always trying to find the easiest way to do anything. <laughs> I'm kind of the original lazy man's guide to enlightenment. <laughs> I always try to take the path of least resistance and to make it as easy as I can. So this summer, I found myself going to simpler solutions to certain things than I had ever thought of before. And it has made my life much easier and much more efficient and given me a lot of space to play in all kinds of dimensions. So I want to talk about that today, but I also want to review what we have been talking about for those of you who are new here or who haven't been here for a while. And to remind us of what we've done for the past several months. We really got interested in the notion of 2012 as a time of a great leap forward in consciousness. Both Lawrence and I knew and spent time with Jose Arguelles, whose book, The Mayan Factor, started the whole business of 2012. And so on the solstice of 2012, we met with dear friends and we spent the time in prayer and meditation in nature and in inside with music and with silence. And honestly, it felt that on the moment of the, the exact moment of the solstice that we felt a shift and we also felt really connected to all of the other spiritual communities around the world who are doing the same things we are doing. And it was beautiful. And so it seemed then that we started to catch the wave. It's not like it was an academic thing that we were talking about. It was a felt perception of change. 
And so many of us talked about this and shared our experiences of having new energies come into us, new expansions come to us, and new ideas and new feelings, new perceptions. So it's in that context that we have been progressing, I believe, as a society and as a world society, as a global society, I think this progress is going on. And many of us who are more conscious or are interested in this, catch the wave and keep it going. And once you've caught that wave, you can't get out of it. It just, uh, it just keeps going. It's like, it, once you start a spiritual path, there's no going back. It's like you've signed up for life. So it's been that energy, too, that has been going on. So we discovered that and we talked about it. And we discussed what are we evolving toward? What is the content of this evolution? And we got some very compelling answers from metaphysicians I'm calling transitional theologians, as well as our own insights, particularly our own insights. But we said that what was seemed to be happening in terms of our experience and in terms of what our leaders were saying, spiritual leaders were saying, is that we were moving to a time of a new consciousness, a consciousness that has never been on the earth before. This consciousness is a coming together of the opposites, the coming together of the male, the female, the yang, the yin, the light, the shadow. It's coming into a new consciousness that we haven't experienced, a consciousness as a whole, and a consciousness as a whole person. And over the summer, I just noticed with my friends and clients, and in our life also, a really wonderful sense of wholeness and not so much of division into, oh, that's my male side, that's my female side. I haven't heard anyone say that for months. Now, some people believe that this wave that we're catching, this evolution that we're doing, has been the whole purpose of the creation. The whole purpose of the creation of the planet was to find a new consciousness and to co-create a new consciousness. And so this is the culmination of years and years and years of evolution on the planet. Now, we recently have been studying a book called The Gene Keys, which maintains that it's absolutely programmed into our DNA, that it's it's unfolding whether we want to or not, because it's been there from the time we were amoebas. It's, it's kind of opened up more and more, so it's inevitable. So it's like, okay, relax, you know? This is really going on. It requires no effort. All it requires is attention. Just paying attention to how we are feeling, what we are being led to, what our insights are, what are our intuitions telling us and also to spend some time in a receptive mode, to being open, to just lying on the couch somewhere and say, okay, bless me, I'm available. <laughs> Teach me, guide me, let me know how to serve, but mostly bless me. <laughs> so that's been very effective, simple technique that we have been using. Now, we noticed along the way that there were obstacles, some obstacles to our moving forward. And it's always remarkable to me in my private practice how people have the same issues when they come to see me. I'm sure those of you who are teachers, the many of you who are teachers here, also experience that. So you'll have... A, few weeks of people coming in with the same issue, which always turns out to be 
the issue that I'm grappling with, too. So we really grow in tandem with other spiritual people. We grow as a community. We're not separate. That's an illusion, and it's a painful one. And there's so many ways that I can tell you how we can connect with one another and make our lives much richer and fuller. So what I began to notice last winter was that people were coming in and saying, hey, I don't think I've learned a thing because I am just being right back in my childhood and my childhood wounds. And I'm thinking about how I was raised and, and how I was not raised. And it's like, I don't get it. So what was beginning to happen for all of us is that childhood wounds were coming up to be dealt with because they were obstacles to our growth. And so we cast about for some way to understand this, to put it in context, and to encourage us to keep feeling these feelings. And, um, and we discovered the presence process. And it was an interesting way in which I really discovered it. I have friends who had already done the presence process and, and had talked about it, but it had not hit home for me. So I went on Amazon looking for a book and another book, and what came up was the presence process. So I said, okay, I'll order that book. And it was really a life-changing experience to go through that process. So the process, the, the author, Michael Brown, says that what holds us back from being in the present moment is unfelt, charged emotions from childhood. And so he gave us a 10-week process, breathing and other information, to bring us more into presence, into the present moment, which is for him and for me and for most of us, in the present is the, in the divine presence. It's in the divine presence. And the techniques he used involved turning toward charged emotions, particularly fear, anger, and grief, turning toward them and allowing ourselves to feel them and feel them until they stopped. Feel them through. And he calls that integrating the feelings. He also said that those feelings are often brought up to us by some messenger, some trigger, some friend saying something to us, or hearing something on the news. Didn't matter what the messenger was, but it would trigger. Trig trigger. I've been so spacey lately. <laughs> it would trigger grief, anger, or fear. And he said the typical way that we react to that is when someone puts us into that state is to say, hey, you just hurt my feelings. Or, hey, that scares me. Or, what are you saying? I don't like what this is turning out to be. Please don't speak that way to me. That he calls reacting. And that, he says, is not effective because it involves blame, involves putting it over there, it involves denying your own participation, it involves your, it brings up your victim, right? So anytime I don't claim my, my own experiences and, and make myself a victim, I am totally without power. Totally without power. So instead of reacting, he taught us to respond. Respond means some messenger brings me some fear, and I go feel the fear. It's my fear. It's, it's a wonderful fear. Now, I discovered 
that fears are wonderful, grief is wonderful, anger is wonderful, so long as we integrate them. And as long as we own them as our feelings. So that was a great help to us in moving forward. Now, the important, one of the important things about doing the responding instead of reacting is, as I said, not going to victim consciousness. Now, victim consciousness is really the shadow of our world. According to Richard Rudd in the Gene Keys, and I so believe it. And when we start looking at where our victim stuff is, it's pretty amazing how we feel the victim of the government, the victim of other people's desires, the victim of our parents, the victim of our children. But it goes really much deeper than that, and it's much subtler than that. And again, victimization is so disempowering that we now have a technique to make it go away, which is to feel whatever is there and to own the feeling. Now, one of the amazing things about this that is just so exciting to me is that it removes our temptation to judge, right? Because when we get triggered, we're right on the judge. Okay, judging you for hurting my feelings, judging you for being angry at me, judging you in some way. And so we learned in the presence process how to help ourselves not judge. Then I found another technique, and this is a simple technique that just came to me um, not long ago. That is just so easy. It's a really, it's the lazy man's guide to enlightenment, really, and it, it's so easy. So this is what I began to do out of the presence process. So when I would get triggered, and also, you know, you can get really triggered by past memories, right? And resentments, past wounds, resentments, you know, which you can't do anything about, and you're trying to stop it. Well, you know, to stop it, you go to your intellect where the wound is to fix the wound. Doesn't work. The intellect isn't equipped, equipped to do that. Okay, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But what I found is if I ask myself questions like, well, I wonder what she meant by that. Instead of entertaining that question, I just send her love. If I find a past resentment that someone triggered in me, I send that person love. If I'm worried about someone, I send that person love. It's so simple. And it really is effective because you can catch it. And then you just say, okay, I am sending love to Jody right now. I'm sending love to her. So my, that's my first very big revelation of the summer of how simple life can be. Now, notice again that it doesn't require thinking to do that. In fact, thinking can interfere with the whole thing. Can interfere with the whole process and make us really, really confused and into drama. If we start, if I start thinking, why did Jody do that? And I go to my intellect, it puts pressure on the intellect because it's not equipped to answer the question, why? It's not, it wasn't what it was meant to do. It's a tool that we use that is an important tool, but it doesn't have the answers. If we try to make our decisions out of our intellect, we're at great risk. So a lot of the summer was about removing the pressure on the intellect and letting it just do what it does well. 
of when there are big decisions to make, go instead to the heart or the horror. And you are brilliantly led. So, so many of you have written me about conditions in your life that need attention and instead, a lot of attention, and instead of going up to figure things out, you've gone to your belly, you've gone to your heart, and you've waited for the answer. Trying to seek the answer, asking why and how, again, it's just a portal to drama, and it is, it won't, you won't get the truth. The, the poor intellect, you know, just it's called on this, so it makes up stories. It's like, okay, I'll just make this up because I don't know the answer, so I'll just try to do this. Right? God bless our intellects. We have really, really been so unkind. As I was talking to Catherine, I was saying the intellect is like the mailroom clerk who got kicked up to be CEO. Right? <laughs> It just doesn't know what to do with these situations. It doesn't. So we go more to our heart and more to our belly to make decisions and to find answers. If we go up to the intellect, we just worry and worry and worry, and we cause ourselves emotional, spiritual, physical, and mental pain. So it's much simpler to go to where those questions really can be answered. Because the deepest parts of us speak through our heart and through our intuition. So again, that's about not using effort, but allowing to come. And the whole business of allowing instead of efforting and being willful, trying to make it, is so much easier. If there's something you need or you want or someone you want to bless, then you just go to that place inside and bless them. So When there's something we really need to know, we allow it to come in. We don't effort it. We don't be willful. We allow it to come in. And the answers are always there. When we allow it, it comes. And so it makes, it makes our life much simpler. Okay, I intend this. I'll get that out. You know, my intellect will say that. And I'm intending this from my heart. Okay, and I'm putting those words out. And I say, I'm intending this. Please help me, I'm intending this, and then we go to allowing. Now, we spend a tremendous amount of energy going up to the intellect in our futile pursuit of answers. So that energy that is freed from doing that goes in the direction of creativity. Because that energy has to go somewhere and it goes to creativity or co-creativity. One of the things that I have noticed again this summer is the, how close guidance is. It's so close and the help we need, so there. So it feels as if the whole creative process is just being simplified all the time. And it's really, really easy to do, to be creative, to just say, okay, I want to be creative in what I do today. I want to be creative with this client. I want to be creative in everything I do. So it's that simple. It's that simple. Now, again, when we move away from the thinking mind and from the intellect, we can be more present to what's really going on. So, for example, we can 
be in the presence of a majestic tree or a beautiful flower or a piece of music. We can look at the tree and say, I wonder how old that is, and I wonder how the chlorophyll gets manufactured, and I, you know, I can, we can go to the analytic mind. And we miss the whole tree. If we just go open in presence to the tree, breathe it in, let it be there for us, in all its majesty and its mystery, it comes into us as a beautiful light and we feel the energy and we feel that we're in communion with that tree. So coming again into being itself with anything or anyone, coming into presence, without going to the head, brings such a beautiful immediacy of experience. And it also allows you to be with the people you know and you've known for years, and you see often, to be new. If you go to your head, you'll think of your history and you'll think, oh, I know what peg is all about, and I know what Gabe is all about. But I don't, because then all I do is I'm looking at my own ideas. I'm not present to them. So again, taking the simple path of just being present and allowing their presence into us really makes a huge difference. So it is about experiencing and knowing, not thinking, and knowing, experiencing, bringing into presence that is fulfilling and uplifting to us. So those things have really uncomplicated things for me this summer. And that's why, now another irony, I have to tell you this. I decided I was going to go back and read Martin Heidegger, who is one of the most complex philosophers in history. I don't know why I was called back there. I didn't know why I was called back there, but I was just eating it up and I loved it. What I like is he says that we're all being. Being is, and we're all just standing out and being. So I love that image. So I didn't go back to being in time and the really difficult stuff. I went to his later works. And there was a Holderlein po poem that he commented on. And in the Holderlein poem, he uses the phrase, the splendor of the simple. And I thought, yes, that describes the summer. So those are my hints that have been working for me. So God bless us all and namaste.
that improvisation, I quoted an old American folk song, the words of which are, my life goes on an endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the real but far off sound that hails a new creation. Though there is turmoil, it, it does not disturb my inmost calm while to this rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord or all the earth, how can I keep from singing? Beautiful, was that? One of the great gifts of Myron's wonderful music is that it helps to create a felt perception of the unified field that surrounds us always, but we don't always know it. So the music helps to evoke that presence. And then combine it with your wonderful presences here today. That's a great combo. And you have this extraordinary felt perception of the unified field. Something that you can remember into this next month and carry with you, evoking this in your own meditations at home. As mystics, we consciously live frequently in the unified field, the ultimately simple, the mystic one. Integrating the mystic into the quotidian, into our daily life. And so listening now as we begin our completion, listening with your whole body, breathing into the listening, trying a little experiment of pushing the air out and holding it out for just a moment, waiting for the felt urge to take a breath in. So pressing the breath out and just waiting a moment rather than just being automatic. And feeling that sense of fullness that comes with that delicious breath. We often take the breath for granted. So holding the breath out again, waiting for the urge to breathe in. The following is inspired by the presence process and the sages Tao Te Ching. The present is the unified field of which the mystics have spoken and experienced and lived for millennia. With the evidence of our current unified experiences before us, to maintain the perception that we are separate from one another on any level is madness, denial, and delusion. We are now choosing to behave as if we are one with all of life. The unified experience is the intimate connectedness of presence within each other and all life, remembering and having compassion for ourselves and others remembering how we are all still limited unconsciously and perceptually by the ancient imprints passed down through the generations. Our physical bodies appearing separate aren't. We are intimately energetically connected to each other's body. Our mental body isn't the physical brain in our head its capacities extend beyond the confines of our physical body to any distance we care to think about. 
Our emotional experiences aren't confined to us alone. They are shared by the world around us. Our ongoing and unfolding vibrational awareness isn't just personal and exclusive. It is universal and inclusive. Are you aging or saging? If you are becoming a sage, you will grow in trust and contentment. You will discover the light of life's deepest truths. If you are merely growing older, you will become trapped by fears and frustrations. You will see only the darkness of infirmity and death. The great task of the sage is learning to see in the darkness and not be afraid. There is one primary choice facing every saging person. Will we grow older withdrawing, circling the wagons and waiting for the end? Or will we become sages harvesting the spiritual essence of our lives and blessing all future generations? So go in peace amid the unified field, charged with our shared mystic field today, open to unexpected blessings, heart flowing with gratitude and wonder. Namaste. We honor the place in you wherein the entire universe dwells. We honor the place in you which is of love, of truth, of light, of peace. As you are in that place in you and we are in that place in us, we gloriously, splendidly, simply are one. Namaste.